Hey, if you are a fan of the Belonging Factor podcast, you are going to love the Belonging Factor book. My new book, Belonging Factor, How Great Brands and Great Leaders Inspire Loyalty, Build Community, and Grow Profits is now available. So get on Amazon, order your copy today, ebook, audiobook, paperback, hardcover. We've got you covered no matter what your preference. Hello and welcome. This is the Belonging Factor Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Devin Halliday. I am the Chief Belonging Architect at Rudiment Solutions and the host of the Belonging Factor Podcast. And we have a special, special, special episode for you. So thanks for tuning in. A few things before we get started. Make sure that you follow us at Belonging Factor on Twitter. And if you have any suggestions for the show, comments or feedback, hit us up. I belong at belongingfactor.com. All right, so I promised that this was going to be a very special episode, and I was not lying. So I'm very, very honored to welcome this week Karen Walker. And Karen Walker is from Karen Walker Consulting all the way in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, Karen. Hello. All right, there she is. She's here. And the Karen and, and I connected through LinkedIn, which is a phenomenal platform. And if you're listening to this, it's likely because you found us through some things we've done on LinkedIn. And I've had an opportunity to learn a, a lot about the work that Karen does and the messages she has out there in the community. And gosh, what an impressive person with a very diverse background who has a lot to share for you today. So let's just kind of jump on in. So Karen, why don't you give a, a little introduction? What, what are you about for those listeners who might not be familiar with you? Yes, hello, and thank you so much for um, having me on board today. It's a real uh, privilege and a, a pleasure to share some of my thoughts and experience. Absolutely. So as you said, I've had a very diverse career. I've worked as a technology-focused person. I've worked in uh, hands-on customer service in hospitality, entertainment, um, and uh, most recently I've worked as a consultant um, so I'm um, up to my fourth career, really. So I've made a number of pivots along the way. But my most recent pivot has been about uh, my passion for uh, healthy, vibrant workplace cultures, um, for being able to make a difference in terms of helping organisations achieve that uh, through change, transformation, um, and building up a thriving uh organization because its people and teams are thriving. So it's passion that's brought me to this uh, point in my career and really wanting to make uh, a difference. And uh, and it's been really a lifelong journey of uh, my own personal experiences, uh, mainly positive, but also some negative ones along yeah, the they, way. They all have that same influence <laughs> for us. Right? Yes. Great. What what a what a phenomenal thing to to do to find that your experience, expertise, and passion have all kind of led to this place because it has the opportunity to create such a tremendous ripple you know, effect. There's so many waves that'll go out and spread past this. Um, and so, you know, I, I'd love for you to to share a little bit of your personal story about what really kind of opened up this idea of connection, community, and tribe within a, a, a culture and a workplace culture, because I think we, we have some similar stories, and I haven't shared my story with you yet, but, but uh, we might get to that for the listeners, too. So what, what's, what got you there? Well, really, it was uh, an opportunity to go and live and work in New Zealand. So, um, and I ended up living in New Zealand for 10 years. And what I found, uh, the first employer that I worked for in New Zealand was a very large organisation. It was um, the biggest greenfield um, business in New Zealand still. So it was a big deal as part of opening up that business. Um, it brought with it a lot of challenges. Um, but at the same time, I got to experience quite a different culture, um, which was the New Zealand culture. But at the same time, the New Zealand culture, the strong sense of identity, 
the strong uh, sense of, of belonging for a multicultural, diverse um, society over there was also what I experienced within the organisation that I was working for there. So, and that struck me um, particularly after I'd left that organisation and particularly after I'd left New Zealand and came home to Australia, how unique but actually how special and how uh, beautiful that was where um, particularly as an Australian managing a lot of New Zealanders, the immediate acceptance of me, um, accepting me as, you know, one of their own own, um, and the way that the level of trust and cooperation that helped that organisation get through some hard times and be successful, um, but also had that in good times as well. So that really led me to reflect on how do you get that? How do you get that sense of community that you experience in your own local neighbourhood or your family or your church or your sporting um, club? How does that happen within another community, which is, of course, what organisations are? Right. And for all of us, we spend much more time typically with uh, all of those folks at our office, uh, our teams w- within that that community uh, than we would like to maybe necessarily uh, because of, of the obligation of, of our work and our accountabilities and how important it is to be able to have that same experience, whether you're with a team at work or you're with your family outside of work to be able to know and trust that you can be the same you in both environments and that everybody else is too, is, is quite a, a difference from, it sounds like what maybe you, you were experiencing in your prior work before you went to New Zealand and my story. Similarly, um, I had the opportunity to work in Hawaii for a couple of years and it was very much a similar story to yours where you have a native indigenous culture and community that, uh, you know, far it, it exceeds the re, you know more recent Western influences, but it is open and welcoming and tribal in that way that it's it's very much about bringing you in and everybody has a, a role and everybody supports everybody. Um, there is no difference in how a person would talk to me as a senior leader versus how they would talk to their peer, which was new for me because there was always this uh, what was described as a healthy fear to have of you know, senior people which never made sense to me it should just be mutual respect which is I think similar to what you start to talk about and that mutual respect exists in those cultures because you know there's authenticity there's truth there's there's zero filter or show being put on right to mm-hmm. to to uh, to operate in that environment it's just hey here's how here's how we do here's what we are let's go do this thing together right that's right and actually there there will be a lot of parallels between hawaii and new zealand um, with the polynesian background and a concept of that the maoris have that i've really um, loved is this concept of mana and in English, I think the closest word we have is gravitas. So their concept is if you're a person with great mana, you might not be in a senior leadership role within the, the tribe or the whanau, as they call their, their family, or the marae. Um, you're just someone who brings a certain amount of wisdom and therefore you're very influential. And that's a concept that I really love is that um, we can all be influential um, regardless of what our role might be in whatever community we're in um, if we bring wisdom and we're bringing positive influence to those around us. So that was something I really understood and got to experience um, in New Zealand as well. Which, I, as I, I agree with you, it's it's really important that roles that you're in, the position that you hold in a hierarchy, shouldn't change how you interact with your fellow human beings um, within the community. And certainly, it, you should have 
greater level of uh, responsibility um, to show care for those people that are working for you as well um, who weren't in a leadership role. Yeah. So, and, and what a what a great experience uh, it sounds like to to have to help shape kind of what is is necessary right now in in the workplace. Because from from your perspective, maybe you can share a, a little bit about where you feel we are on this kind of convergence of people, roles in the workplace, the culture of of companies and businesses who have been working on diversity and inclusion initiatives for quite a long time as part of their cultural organizational uh, mm. you know, understanding of who they are and how they compete in a, in a world <laughs> where you have to show up a little differently than we have in the past. You know, so what's some of your perspective on that? Great, great question, love it. So yes, you can have diversity in organizations. So you can have diversity from ethnicity, from religion, from gender, um, all sorts of diversity, neurodiversity, different skill sets, but that doesn't mean you have inclusion. So that doesn't mean that that diversity is necessarily uh, valued or um, enabled to um, really bring together diverse perspectives. And you can have inclusion as well. So you can have these multi-cross-functional teams, particularly in new agile ways of working. So you might have a very diverse group of people sitting around a table or part of a team, but that doesn't mean that you've got a high level of cooperation because if there isn't a sense of trust um, or psychological safety with each other, if um, people are wearing masks so they're not feeling like they can bring their whole self to to work, so they're inherently putting up a barrier anyway to having uh, social connections with people, um, you won't have that sense of belonging. And from my perspective, it's that sense of belonging. Um, if you feel that you're really welcomed as part of a community, which is teams or divisions or a whole organisation, um, you bring your true self, but you also cooperate because you're invested in other people, because they're invested in you. So that's where I think there's a big focus on diversity and inclusion, rightfully so. But if you're just looking at it from a metrics perspective, so if you're ticking a box to say, well, look, look at our workforce. Our workforce represents the community that we're operating in. If it doesn't have the sense of, belonging inside the organisation that exists outside in the community, um, that sense of belonging, it won't get the advantages of a diverse workforce. Yeah, it's, what a, a great point that you just made in the idea of metrics. And, and this is one that's probably worth us exploring even a little further, because for our listeners, one of the, the most important things we do is, okay, we talk high level, conceptualizing some of these uh, environments that we exist, that exist within our teams and recognizing where we have opportunity to make incremental improvements. But measurement is always something in a high performing culture that there are 12 or 18 or 15 different ways to measure uh, the same outcome, right? Uh, ultimately, being able to understand the characteristics that drive that outcome are more important when it comes to culture. Just measuring a cultural outcome is sometimes difficult to give you that sense, at least from my perspective, that sense of if what you're doing is working. So uh, an outcome could be I've changed the diversity of my team to in my organization to match my diversity metrics uh, within my community. And that's such yeah. a weird word to say diversity metrics. That's, that's, that makes no sense. But for, uh, the, the idea that, that, um, multiculturally, racially, ethnic, ethnically, I have a organization that, that matches those that the organization serves. That's great. You're measuring an outcome of not necessarily culture though. And, uh, and so from, from your advice to the, to all of us, what, 
are some of the ways we should be thinking about what we measure or how we de decide what a metric should be? Mm. So the first thing is to say, what are you measuring? So if you're measuring what impact an organisation has on every individual that it touches and can influence, that means your culture extends well beyond the boundary of your organisation. So not only are you impact your culture impacts your employees, but um, they're part of families. So if employees are negatively impacted by a culture that say got you know a lot of bullying going on, they're going to go home. Um, the impact on them is going to impact their families. What organisations do impact the communities in which they operate. And, of course, what they do impacts the environment, which impacts all of us and also impacts customers. So if we think of organisations as a, a big player in a lot of communities, including their own, then that really drives what you should measure. So if you then think around, well, there's moments in all of our lives, including our work lives, where we have to make decisions around what we will do, what how we'll make a decision, on what basis we'll form a decision, um, and how we'll behave in a certain way. So that's influenced very much in, in organisations by the culture. So um, in cultures there tends to be um, great influence if you see what other people are doing or you know from what you see other people doing or saying or deciding on that that's the accepted norm, you're more likely to fall in with that, even though at times you might not agree yourself in terms of where your values might be. So what you really need to, to understand culture is not measure what people are feeling and their emotions, which is, ten, is what engagement surveys tend to measure. But you have to ask questions around those things that influence people's decisions, actions, um, and, and uh, actively and intentionally talk about values. So um, really have discussions about values um, and where espoused values of an organisation might not be the lived values of an organisation. So it's quite a, a different approach from measuring the outcome that you see, which can be a lot of demotivated, unhappy, disengaged, um, stressed people versus are you going to measure the things, the tangible things within an organisation that's causing those things to be an outcome and that is at the at the heart of this the the most important thing we can do is if as a as a leader of an organization as a active participant or just member of an organization who has a vested interest in the success of the organization and in their own happiness and fulfillment uh, being able to have a voice and and help make sure that the measurements that are in place align is truly that part of inclusion and then the evolution of it. From my perspective, an organization that is only measuring its emotional quotient uh, output is uh, is and is not seeking feedback from all who participate, but only those who are part of whatever this step in the diversity process is, uh, it's, it's counterintuitive to ultimately what you're trying to build. It, it creates exclusion a little bit and probably doesn't represent, to the point you just made, a, a behavioral observable action that uh, aligns with values. So a stated value might be to create and foster the inclusive environment, but what you're doing potentially and how you choose to measure is actually excluding people or excluding sections of people in their thought or their feedback because it um, maybe hasn't just been thought of yet or doesn't align with, with uh, truly what you believe. So when you say 
you have to have conversations about values and conversations about culture uh, regularly to be able to, to, to solicit, solicit this feedback. What does that look like? Well, first up, um, feeling a sense of belonging includes actually being involved in agreeing what are the values and the purpose, what are the things that are going to connect all of us in this particular organisation in relation to its mission and purpose. So that's the first thing as part of a sense of belonging, that you're not being asked to live the values, which are things that you've had no say in, and which are often not human values, so they're not things you can actually live. So, um, you know, if, if um, a value is to be to have a digital mindset, um, that's not a human value. That That's a, a principle, that's probably a, a key capability that an organisation wants for um, their strategy and, and whatever they're doing in the marketplace. So it's really, really important first up, make sure you have human values that will resonate, um, that you're setting yourself up for success, that people will be able to live those values. Um, secondly, those intentional conversations can be incorporated in quite practical ways. So um, performance management conversations are the ideal um, space to have them and you can make um, values a high priority if they factor large in performance ratings, if you get a promotion, um, if you get a bonus, because then you're saying it's not just how you achieve targets or it's not just that you achieve targets or goals, how did you achieve them? So did you get those results in a way um, that was living the values of the organisation, particularly in terms of sales targets or um, behaving ethically and um, with kindness and generosity towards your own people and customers. So um, that's a very practical way mm -hmm. that we can really make um, values meaningful because they have direct um, outcomes um, for individuals. Um, the other way is to really help people understand what to do when they see behaviours that aren't demonstrating espoused values. And you can do that as well. So for anyone who's worked in a, uh, an industry that's got physical business, I don't know if they call them the same things in America, but we have our toolbox talks down here. So every week or every two weeks or every four weeks, our tradies will get together if they're working on a construction site or they're working in an industry that's got um, handling um, dangerous chemicals, there'll be uh, a toolbox talk that talks around explicit risks and hazards that they're exposed to as part of their work. Um, now, Australian legislation, like a, a lot of global legislation, um, includes psychosocial risks and hazards now as workplace injuries. Um, the latest ISO, um, OHSM standard that came out last year and Australia adopted earlier this year, the same. It talks about culture has to be assessed as a risk or hazard, leadership, work capacity, work demands, um, social hazards like bullying or harassment. So if we can incorporate that idea that um, an unhealthy culture is actually a risk and hazard, not only to the organisation's performance, which it certainly is, but to the individuals working within that organisation, then they should be incorporated into your regular talking about health and safety to say if we don't have a deep sense of community and belonging in an organisation, um, there's a high likelihood we're going to turn a blind eye uh, to things or feel that the organisation doesn't care about us. So if we see the wrong thing happening, um, we may not speak up because we might think, well, that's the norm, nothing's going to change. So 
it's reframing the importance of culture as really the most important asset an organisation has. And there's certainly some stats that uh, Ernst & Young put out, can't remember the exact number, but um, from their perspective, culture in some organisations is um, worth 60% of their entire assets. So if you start thinking of culture as your most important asset and you get past the hurdle of intangible, you can't because every organisation understands their intangible asset of reputation is valuable. If we start thinking in that way, that culture is an asset and we protect it, we talk about it, we it's part of our core strategy every year about what we're going to do about it, that we invest in it um, like we would with any cornerstone asset in an organisation and think about it as, um, as we would manage our financial situation, have a strategy, invest in that, invest in our um, total value as an organisation, that then means that culture features in a lot of processes, policies, everything really, that it currently doesn't. That's tremendously powerful to, to contemplate. And as, as I'm listening to this and, I, and I'm thinking of all of the ways I've seen this live and work in real life, um, I, I imagine there's some naysayers out there. I imagine there's some folks who say, yeah, we tried that. It, it just doesn't work. And I'm, so I'm sure that that's an execution opportunity rather than a strategy opportunity uh, if, if that's the case. But I, I, I want to back up for a second and get a little bit more into this idea of culture as an asset and thinking that way. So I've witnessed some very strong brands with strong reputation as a brand with a long history as a very good employer make transitions into attempting to bring culture to the forefront as an understood asset and integrated into more facets of its business. And I've heard things like, that's great that your team's performing so well, but I didn't see you post on Instagram any pictures of your team this week celebrating and, and cheering. You really need to step up and I, I need to see more of that because your team needs to see that you're posting pictures of them smiling and happy. So what say you to that type of approach of trying to bring... Be, because ultimately, I think the, the, the mission of that approach is bring visibility to this idea that we are collaborating and having fun. So what say you to that approach? And do you have any alternatives to suggest? Oh, I sure do. So that's around pulling the curtain back from what's actually happening inside of organisations. And we're seeing a number of things where there's a power shift happening at the moment. So um, from a social movement perspective, so the one that we're most familiar of recently, of course, is the Me Too movement, which um, gained momentum not within organisations but outside of organisations that really has uh, brought a lot of change. Hasn't quite got there yet, but that's a good example of significant change of cultures in organisations just as cultures in countries need, it's a social movement. So, um, and there's been a change certainly here in Australia in terms of uh, two royal commissions we've had recently. So a couple of years ago it was the Royal Commission into uh, the reporting of child sexual abuse in institutions. Um, that really changed uh, a lot of... Um, it will change a lot of laws and governance. Um, I think worldwide we saw a, uh, uh, an announcement from the, the Pope a couple of days ago 
So these things gain momentum once there's that transparency that you talk about, that things are unacceptable, that society is not going to accept it, governments are not going to accept it, um, that you, you start to get change. And then just recently um, Australia's been unfortunately in the news because of our financial services sector down here in the Royal Commission into banking, superannuation and financial services sector here. Um, and whilst that was going on, we also had uh, shareholders um, speaking up. So from a shareholder perspective, they actually, they just don't want to get the financial information about how the organisation is, is performing. They want to know what's happening from a culture perspective. So we had, uh, I think it was two of our main four banks here in Australia, the shareholders used the only power they had to not approve uh, salaries for boards. If they do it again this, this financial year, all of the boards of those organisations will lose their job. So we've got a social movement underway around what do we accept in terms of, yes, these organisations are achieving um, significant profits, yes, they contribute um, greatly to the economy and the well-being of um, nations and society, but at the same time, we all care very much about how they actually do that. Are they a good citizen? And there's a correlation between unhealthy workplace cultures and misconduct. So, and that's what I alluded to earlier, um, there's a lot of research that has shown that there's a whole high correlation and particularly in organisations that are um, overworked and the financial services sector definitely is, and I think this is globally, not just here, we have from the board down there, absolutely overwhelmed with information, responsibility, um, and what happens in those circumstances is you don't make good decisions um, and you lose sight of the things that are important. So that transparency is starting to come through. So we've had new um, corporate governance regulations coming into Australia shortly for all of our listed entities on our stock market down here. So that require that now we'll hold boards accountable for culture and hold boards accountable for making sure senior leaders in organisations are creating and influencing the type of ethical, responsible culture um, that they're required to. So the way that works here is it's an if not, why not. So all of those listed entities uh, can be asked by uh, regulators, if you're not measuring and understanding your culture, if boards, you don't have information on the nature of your culture, if leaders aren't actually demonstrating what they're doing to influence culture in a positive way, you've got to come up with a reason of why you're not doing that. At the same time, um, in terms of occupational health and safety, um, there will be increased um, uh, impact on organisations that have certifi certification in ISO, which is a lot of the big corporates all working in, in industries where um, they're at higher risk. So they'll have to prove also that they are active in their risk and hazard management in terms of culture, leadership, um, social risks and, and hazards. So there is a sea change coming. And particularly in the financial services sector, Europe is ahead of us here in Australia. And um, so we've got um, the Irish Banking um, Culture Board that um, was created last year, I think it was last year. Um, so they're actively uh, doing work uh, in terms of being the independent uh, organisation that will measure and assess the bank's cultures to help influence but also bring, as you referenced, that much-needed transparency because once there's transparency on a key asset in an organisation, um, there will be more likelihood of them actually doing something about it. So it's that old story, you know, if 
you're meant to be doing something, you're not doing it, but someone else knows that you're meant to be doing it. <laughs> it gives you the impetus to actually go about fixing things. So it that that is happening in um, the UK, um, uh, but also um, it's just starting up in Ireland as well. So there's some real opportunities in terms of people power, um, in terms of consumers, and that's happened here as well. So a lot of consumers are moving to member-owned, community-owned banks, um, and they, they're experiencing enormous growth because they feel they're more trusted in some ways than some of the bigger banks. So there is a, a starting of a social movement, more than a start, I think, that will actually demand that transparency and say, don't just publish your financial statement, publish your culture statement as well. That's powerful. Publish your culture statement as well. And to 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 see regulation being the catalyst to that is great because that means there's a tremendous social pressure upon legislators, et cetera, to, to regulate uh, this as a, a required portion of, of how we do business. We can do this without regulation. And that's, I think, you know, a, a lot of what, what your work is, what the, what we talk about on the, the belonging factor podcast often is, is how can we do this without regulation? So we've talked a lot from a organizational or leadership standpoint and some, some big things, a few tactical elements. What about from a community member standpoint, whether that means employee uh, or just, you know, part of the community who maybe doesn't have a title as a leader, but uh, has the ability to influence. What, what, uh, what advice do you have or what conversation can you recommend that a person like that might get into? Yeah, it's, it's really remembering we're all in one big community, which is the human species. And the story I like, like to tell is um, about often we focus on how can we make customers feel they belong, um, you know, to our organisation and feel connected to our brand. But, but I like to think about how can we as customers be better customers to those people who are serving us um, who might be in a fairly um, not, you know, highly inspiring sort of job, but how can we actually say to them, um, I'm part of your community, so I'm going to care about you as your customer as much as I expect you to care about me. So. Um, I have a small village in the suburb. I live in Melbourne and I have a supermarket there. And I routinely noticed one of the, the checkout uh, service attendants did seem to be quite unhappy. Um, but I also noticed at the same time that she had the most amazing uh, fingernails. She spent so much time and attention on beautifully manicured fingernails and amazing colours. Um, and one day I just I said to her, oh, wow, look at, you know, your fingernails today, orange today. They absolutely look fantastic. They suit you. And she just lit up like a Christmas tree. And because I'd seen her, I'd seen her as an individual. And now I, if I am in her queue, we talk about her fingernails every time I'm in there. But that's often I think we have to pay attention to we can be good customers too to make workplaces better places. So often if we're feeling frustration about customer service or our customer experience, a lot of the time the people that we're um, raising any issues or concerns with isn't the person that's responsible for that. And that's where we've got to use a bit of emotional intelligence and emotional management and understand there's no benefit of, um, you know, treating someone in a way that you wouldn't like to be treated because you've had a poor customer experience, but but they're the person that, that's actually listening. And so it's, it's understanding um, you get a better outcome all the, all the time in whatever role you're in if you work on the, the assumption the person that you're dealing with is 
you're part of your community, no matter what role you're in, whether you're a leader, a manager, whatever it is. And so, and I think having had years of working in customer service and dealing with some pretty ferocious um, customer complaints and some pretty bad behaviour of the, the customers, I think that's actually made me a better customer. Um, but I think over time, it's yeah, we've just got to expand and not think there's a border um, between an organisation and its customers or all its local community, that um, we're actually all in this together. And, um, yeah, so it doesn't matter who you are, you can make a difference. That's great advice. It doesn't matter who you are, you can make a difference. And so if you are then back into an organization and a person who's seeing that there's maybe a disconnect between the stated value and the lived value of the organization, and maybe currently the the way the culture works is you're a little bit concerned or have some reservation about voicing that. I would say that that's a, a truth moment. That's a moment that really exemplifies the the disconnect and it, from from what is stated versus what is lived. And unfortunately, as a as an organization, you don't always get that feedback from a person who might feel that there could be some sort of negative um, result from them sharing it. But from my perspective as an organization leader trying to make important change, that's the exact feedback you want. So there's two things that I'd love to to hear from you on because both of these things, I think, ultimately fall for, in, into everything you've talked about so far today. And, and your insight on, first, as an employer, how do you bridge that or an organizational leader? How do you bridge that? gap ahead of time because you you won't be able to catch that moment you won't even know that moment happened so how, what do you what do you have to do to set up to avoid that moment and then the flip side would be how is it as an employee do you trust in that moment that even if it's even if it's going to be tough you're still gonna gonna give it a shot and you're gonna give that feedback so let, let's take it from the organizational standpoint first how do you make sure that you uh, that you set that moment up for for getting that feedback ahead of time, knowing that rolls rollouts of culture, rollouts of of changes are going to be imperfect when particularly when people are involved in lots of people and personalities. So this should be something we should anticipate. This should be something as an organization would be important for us to have a plan or a operational strategy, if you will, to anticipate this. What do you have mm. on that? Um so it's, it's actually a meeting when you make mistakes to your entire team to show that you're just as human as they are and it's it's understanding that. So it's showing that vulnerability and it's also saying, you know, mistakes happen. Um, you know, they can often be unintentional. So actually understanding when people make a mistake um, through no bad intent, it's just happened. Well, then how you respond to it as a manager is really important. Um, even though they might have breached a policy or whatever, you have to take the context into account and you have to look at the whole person and understand, well, this is a really good employee that they've made one mistake. You know, we'll talk about it, but we'll act on the assumption that it was a mistake and the likelihood of happening again is an eye. So, you know, there's no bad outcome from that. So the actual, I'd say, it's sad to say this in a way, but I think the high moment in my entire career was quite a long time ago now when I was living in New Zealand. When at, I think it was in the same week or the same month. I won the Chairman's Award of Harris for Best People Manager at the same, that was nominated by um, executives and agreed by the board and the chair. At the same time, I won an employee nominated, um, I think it was Quest for the Best Manager. So I got, I hit the 360 jackpot. So I, I asked my staff, why? Why did you nominate me? What, 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 was, what am I doing right? And they just said, you just, you don't sweat the small stuff. You let things, as we stay, say down here as we play cricket, you let things go past to the wicketkeeper. Um, 
you only ever focus on what are big issues. Um, so you set us up for success because, and you also share when you, you make mistakes. And I think something we haven't talked about, which is key in belonging, is laughter and joking around. So, and that takes, that's showing your vulnerability as well. And that, that brings that sense of belonging. Because then if you care about each other um, on any sort of level, um, well, then your team are going to support you and you're going to support your team. So from a, inside an organisation when something goes wrong, um, the like, there's a stronger likelihood that people are going to speak up, particularly to you as a manager, if their um, experience of you is that you actually take notice and you take action. The second one about an employee um, I think is a more interesting one and in many ways more challenging. So for me, being a whistleblower or using a whistleblower process um, is symptomatic that the culture isn't healthy because someone feels they can't actually speak up to their manager or even go to HR. They've got to go down an anonymous channel. Um, but even so, the whistleblower processes are there for a good reason. Um, but secondly, it's it's having a um, if there's more than one voice makes a big difference. And by that I mean when I was talking about the 360 uh, around the performance management, if you get 360 degree um, perspectives of people and it's anonymous, you're enabling a whole team to actually say. This manager, our manager isn't um, living the values. This manager is doing this behaviour. And there's that safety and numbers thing. So that it, you're not just asking one person to speak up, you're enabling a whole team um, to actually speak up in a proactive way. Yeah, and that's great feedback for any, any organisation, particularly a, a larger organisation that has to rely on the feedback of the individual to support the initiatives that, that are being rolled out, whether it's a fundamental disagreement in the culture, so it's a pocket veto, if you will, by a particular manager that differs from the, the organization's culture, or it's just a complete misinterpretation and so it was a mistake, either way to be able to have a system in place that promotes that type of feedback and not just for challenges, but also promotes that feedback for the things that are working well. So back yeah. to something that you said all the way back, maybe 30, 40 minutes ago, <laughs> talk about your culture, talk about your values, have it be part of what you just do all of the time. This shouldn't be a couple of time a year thing that we sit down and evaluate. Uh -huh. no, and, no. And, and it shouldn't be, Hey guys, we're going to talk culture now. It just is part of what you do and how you operate and how you think and to understand. And I, I want to go back and, and make sure that I say this exactly the way you said it, that culture is an asset. And to, to, I think it was Ian Y that you, you, you quoted uh, something like some brands or some businesses value culture at 60% of their, their assets. Yeah. Their total assets. Yeah. Which is, which is immensely powerful uh, from challenging a an individual or a leader within your organization who has kind of a siloed task-based structure to think about their role in that tremendous part of the asset of the, the business. So even though you might be an engineer working on a pretty important project and that's your silo that you're in mentally, 99% of what you're doing it, the way you interact with those around you and the way you collaborate and share and grow the ability of yourself and your team uh, and and your all of the cohorts that are around you, that's ultimately the greatest asset that you're contributing to. Yeah, your, your particular project, your engineering, is a very valuable product for the organization, but not nearly as valuable as culture. When, when you look at the sum total that, that you can influence. And that's that's so powerful. And, and that struck me probably one of the largest of what we've talked about. So maybe a good place for us to wrap is, is, is how we 
from your perspective and your expertise, how we do all of this, how we engage and continue to evolve this conversation in an authentic way that truly represents um, for each individual or each organization that truly represents who they are and how, how to know if you're a little bit off the rail so you can get back on. Uh, so again, authenticity and, and how we can do this authentically. So there's a few key things. The first thing is thinking about it as an asset means it's, it's, you, it's got to be on your, on your balance sheet, which means that it's got to be part of your annual strategy, which means you then have, you create a business case to say, here, you know, this is why we need to invest in culture as we would invest in other key assets. You're then enabling um, leaders and managers to buy into it because, um, as you would say, in a budget process to say, this is something that's just core of, of what we are as an organisation. Just even having that mindset means that you're going to get a greater buy-in from leaders and managers to actually um, work on uh, influencing the culture in a positive way. The next thing is really what we've talked about is also then understanding where are we at in terms of culture, and that's measurement. So something we didn't speak about but you alluded to just a bit earlier was um, if you assess culture and you assess it in a way where you're looking at individual uh, team and organisation as part of your performance management um, approach, um, what you can actually do is see where your great teams are operating from a cultural perspective. And then you can create a social movement. So um, instead of highlighting the negatives, the way to create cultural change is around appreciative inquiry. So to say, not drill down into why isn't it working, but say, what could it be? What could it look like? And work forwards um, towards what it could be. And the best way is using those parts of your organisation that are already there. So people can actually see and learn from is the behaviours of a team that's really a tight-knit team and are living the values of this organisation. Um, the next thing after your, your cultural assessment is then looking at, you know, the various ways that you can influence positively. I try not to say manage culture because I don't think we can manage culture because we can't manage people either. <laughs> it's, we're not managing, we're influencing. And we're trying to influence uh, thoughts and beliefs and long-held beliefs around what an organisation values. Um, so it's then looking at those things that are you can actually influence and um, you can actually instigate some changes. And then the, the, the next step is really sustaining. So that's, again, around your culture toolbox talks, always talking intentionally about culture, performance management, um, at the start of, you know, big team meetings, um, um, instead of just asking, do we have any occupational health and safety risks or is, every, you know, is everyone okay, is actually have an intentional conversation about culture. But then it's got to be a loop. So it's not uh, we go down these steps. It's got to be you're constantly reflecting um, as you would on any important asset in your organisation, how are we going and what might we need to do in terms of tweak certain areas because it's cultures change, people in your organisation change, um, structure of an organisation might change. So many things change within organisations that can actually positively or negatively impact culture and that's a really important point that, um, front of mind, any major decision and change in terms of, oh, we're bringing in this new technology or we're acquiring this organisation um, or we're going to do this and offer a new product and service, key to those um, making those decisions has to be looking at it through a moral and ethical lens and say, does this align with our values? Do we want to make this change? Um, do we want to launch this product and service? Um, it's, again, having that sense that you belong to the broader community, that your products and services can, can have 
tremendously negative impacts on consumers. Um, so it's, again, always um, having values through those key decisions. And unfortunately, with rapid change these days and competitiveness and thinking of agile, translating agile as being fast, um, is there's often not enough time spent reflecting on some key decisions in organisations to look at it through an ethical moral lens and say, is this the right thing to do? Is it the right thing to do? That's a, that's a baseline great authenticity test right there is I know what I believe to be right. Is this the right thing to do? And if the answer is yes, you have to do it no matter how challenging or difficult. And if the answer is no, no matter the cost to short-term gain, you know the exposure to long-term risk obviously is too great. So you have to not. Wow. Yeah. Powerful. I think it comes down to how I understand ethics is, is do no harm. So if organisations um, want to live that, and just think of it from an ethic and moral view is we don't want to do any harm. We don't want to do any harm to our employers, employees. We don't want to do any harm to our consumers and customers. We don't want to do any harm to our communities or the environment. And um, if anybody wants to learn more about that, um, uh, Harvard uh, Culture of Health um, has a free program on that, which I've done, which is full of tools and approaches and ways to get everyone spreading the world, um, having a voice and making a change within their own organisations around looking at that and looking at organisations um, are all actually in the business of health um, when you think about it because it touches so many people and so many communities. So that's my tip if anybody wants to follow up. Um, Harvard's Culture of Health program, um, it's a wonderful program um, uh, that just highlights the opportunities and, and, and how you can build that business case and how you can reframe um, your role in the world as an organisation, whether you're for-profit or non-for-profit. That's a fantastic resource. I appreciate you sharing that. So I know you, you are boots on the ground working with your clients in Melbourne, Australia, to help further this mission of occupational, mental health, of, of occupational, cultural health um, constantly. But if uh, somebody from this audience in the U.S. or anywhere in the world wants to get in touch with you and work with you, what's the best way to contact you? Um, definitely on my LinkedIn profile. Um, that's my website. Um, that's where you can actually see all about me and what I write about and what I'm passionate about. And that's actually where um, I connect with with most people. And I certainly do do collaborations with, with people uh, no matter where they're, um, um, where they are in the world, like we are just right. now. So. <laughs> so, so get on LinkedIn and check out Karen Walker Consulting. Um, Karen does workshops, it sounds like collaborations and all sorts of other consulting to ensure that we can help bring culture as an asset to every organization out there that, uh, that believes, knows and understands that a sense of belonging and a sense of strength of culture are ultimately a competitive advantage, but just the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Hey, Karen, thanks for being with us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Maybe you've lost time and money or you're losing the wrong people. Or you just have a conflicted culture that's searching for the truth. Or it could be something like productivity loss and people are just stressed. Either way, perhaps we should talk. I'd love to work with you and share with you through my keynotes, highly engaging workshops, coaching and consulting services, how we can bring the power of belonging factor and the tools we've developed to your organization 
and meet these challenges with real solutions that involve people, refine process, and help you deliver better profits. So visit belongingfactor.com or rudimentsolutions.com today. Thank you for listening to The Belonging Factor, and I look forward to working with you and your teams.